Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Soma, the CTO at N4, and we discuss the rapid acceleration of technology over recent decades, how to build teams that are focused on the future, and the hardest lesson to learn as you transition into leadership. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. It's Soma. Hi, how are you? Good afternoon. Good. Am I pronouncing your first name correctly? Perfectly. Yeah. Oh, awesome. How do you say your last name? It's uh, Soma Sundaram. You just pronounce okay. it the way it's written. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds beautiful. Like when you hear it, when I was reading it, I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, actually my, um, the previous CEO um, always used to introduce me as um, you know, here's Soma, you know, he's one of those like uh, Madonna or, or Sting or Prince. There's only one name. <laughs> that is actually pretty cool. I like that. I think that gives like a certain, it sets the tone for, for the interaction, right? Yeah. There's only one and he is the best and he is here. I'm so excited. I was really pumped up to talk with you today. I, I feel like I have no idea what this ERP thing is. So it, to me, I, I'm a small business owner, so like under 15 people. I've, you know, experienced different size companies, maybe up to like two or 300 people, like working directly in them. But, and I kind of get the idea of like when I see the graphics or read it, it's a little bit ambiguous. But I was really excited to talk with you because I was hoping that you could explain ERP to me like I'm a two-year-old. I, I, I will definitely attempt to do that. And usually we don't like jump right into that. Usually I'm like, oh, hey, let's become friends. But I was just so excited to get this answer because I Google around, I see the graphics, I see the softwares, and I just couldn't like wrap my mind around it. Yeah, I was hoping you could help me with that. Yeah, no, we could start with that. Um, so if you um, look at any, um, any, any organization, right, whether it's a healthcare provider like a hospital, or um, a manufacturing company, you know, was, was, uh, is in process manufacturing, like food and beverage company or what have you. All these organizations tend to have a lot of processes, right? So they buy things. So you, you need procurement. You write a purchase order. Somebody wants to, puts in a requisition, which becomes a PO. Somebody decides which vendor I should go to. And the vendor then sends in an acknowledgement and so on and so forth. Or I talk to my customer and take an order. So these are business processes that in the olden days before ERP, they weren't digitized. So people filled out forms, like I lived in that world. Um, I may not look that old, but I am. So, so when in the 1980s, uh, people had like carbon copy forms, right? So sales are, if I'm a sales rep uh, selling hair care products, I walk into the salon, I make, uh, make a deal, I fill out a form, here are the products you bought, here's the quantity I'm selling you, here's when I deliver it to you, here's the price you're gonna pay, and here's the tax. And then take a, tear a copy, give it to the, uh, to the salon owner, take a copy, give it to my uh, sales department for my commissions. Third copy goes to a credit manager who approves the credit, you get the idea. So all of these, if you put all of these forms into a system to digitize, store that information, that's basically what ERP does, right? So it basically automates the business process. 
so that you don't have to repeatedly look at forms. You know, imagine a huge, uh, you know, cupboard with a bunch of uh, forms floating around. That's not how you run your company, right? So that's what ERP does. It automates the order to cash process, procure to pay process, plan to produce. Uh, all of those processes become automated in the system. That's the ERP. Got it. Because the way I came across this was we have these processes that we call them processes that, that run at the company, like, uh, you know, new guest process. We go through this routine of like finding new guests. There's a system, there's documentation on how to do it, examples. And so, and we have that. And then we have, you know, our different sales processes. We have marketing processes. We have all of these things that we've essentially found to be true that we just need to maintain and then constantly improve. And so, we were trying to figure out the best way to do this and we ended up with like a spreadsheet. So we have like all of our departments, the different processes that in the way we differentiate between processes that should be on the sheet or, or not is just how closely they're tied to revenue. Like if it's very clearly something that impacts revenue, then it goes in the process sheet and we constantly monitor it and improve it. But I was trying to figure out, like we have all these different parts of the organization. And so I'm, I've been asking around like how people do that at scale. And what it, when I hear enterprise, enterprise resource management, ERP, and I read some of the definitions, it sounds like the software should be to help with that. But, but then like an actual application of me trying demos or exploring different softwares, it seemed everything was like, this has to be more like logistic or form driven, like everything starts with like a form entry. And they didn't seem to sort of, they didn't seem to be softwares made for like smaller startups managing their business processes that aren't like the, the more order driven type flows that you described. Yeah, no, I think um, that's fair. Different ERPs is a, you know, address varying different industries, right? So the company I work for, Infor, we specialize in industry-specific processes, right? So if you're a food and beverage company, that's very different than you're an aircraft manufacturer. Both are manufacturing companies, but they are in very different uh, kind of verticals, right? Or you're a healthcare provider, which we do serve. If you're a hospital, there is nothing to sell, right? You're basically buying, procuring things and taking care of patient, patients and, you know, delivering the outcomes that they, they, they need to get, right? So. So it depends on the industry. So the ERP basically digitizes the process. But more importantly, once you have all of this data, you can use this data to automate things where human beings don't have to actually go physically do things, right? Because you have the data in, 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 in the system, in the cloud, you know, presumably, as well as use this data to, to optimize, right? You can do machine learning and things like that. But the starting point is to get the process data. Once you have the data, then you can build all these different things that that automates and optimizes and makes makes it easier to run in a repeatable fashion a large company can be apl applicable to small companies too right so if you look at i don't know you're familiar with uh, a product called uh, netsuite um mm -hmm. it, yeah. it, it, so netsuite addresses smaller end of the market not the the boeings of the world right so so ours is you know goes from mid market to to upper upper end uh, of the of the market. So that's what ERP does. Thank you for helping me with that. I I saw on your homepage you guys actually have uh, like HCA as a customer, and I've gotten to go to their headquarters and meet with them and talk with them. And I was pretty impressed with like the roots of their organization and how many companies have spun out of them. That after my trip up there, I went and bought some of their stock. I was like, I like this company. They, they like produced like. They had a, a chart in their headquarters 
of all the offshoots that came out of HCA. And there was like at least 80 to 100 of them. It was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very large uh, organization. I think the largest for-profit provider in, in the country, HCA. And, and you guys have around 17,000 employees. You're a pretty large company. But I read that uh, you were employee number one. Is that true? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my story is, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm a nomad, lived in lots of places, uh, you know, grew up in India, then went to um, work in Germany in, um, for two years, went to UK for a year, uh, lived in Singapore, lived in Bahrain in the Middle East, then lived in Australia for, for five years. So when I was there, it was a startup company. ERP was getting sort of, you know, some traction at that point, early 90s. I wrote a product for food and beverage and chemical companies, like companies like Albertsons, uh, uh, were one of the first customers to implement that. So that product got bought by a company in, uh, I, w- I used to live in Melbourne, Australia, and a company in Malvern, Pennsylvania bought that company. So I moved from Melbourne to Melbourne. Somebody told me it will be an easy move. Uh, not quite, but um, but that started in four when I came here. So 25 years ago, I moved from Australia to US, and that that started really the the roots of Infor. So how did you meet the the founders, or are you considered a founder, or? Yeah, I mean, so I, I I'm founder as in I came in as employee number one. Um, the company uh, earlier on was owned by an investment company called Golden Gate Capital out of San Francisco. So they had this idea in the early 2000 and right after, you know, the dot-com bust and and 9-11, the market was kind of dead for ERP, right? So it was like a nuclear winter. So Golden Gate had this idea, right? So we have a couple of big players like Oracle, SAP, who are uh, going to this market with a horizontal application, whether you are a healthcare provider or an aircraft manufacturer or a potato chip processor, it doesn't matter. It's the same product, same application, right? So uh, the idea the Golden Gate Capital had was if you actually have products that are specific to certain industries, you can actually go deeper and, and you can solve problems better, right? So, so that's how they started Info. And they bought the company I was with as the first company that started that, right? Because I wrote product, like I said, for food and beverage and chemical companies. The product inherently understood butterfat content in milk, right? You don't pay the farmer based on the, the gallons of milk you get. You pay based on the butterfat content. Because if I'm an ice cream plant, that's what matters to me, right? So, so that's sort of that level of functionality in the product is what Info is about. So that's kind of how... They, they, they thought of this, thes- this being the thesis and started in for an acquired companies that specifically goes after specific industries. And when did you meet like the, the CEO or do you just have the relationship with the people at the fund that are like sort of quarterbacking it? Is that? Uh, no, so there was the, the CEO uh, who um, was the first CEO of, of Infor, right? So his name is Jim Shaper. I still have uh, good contact with him. Uh, so he took the company from 30 million or 40 million dollars in revenue to about 1.7 billion over the course of 2002 to 2010, and and that phase was about getting more assets into specific industries. So we were accumulating good assets. 
then there was a, a different CEO who came along after that, Charles Phillips, who came from Oracle as the CEO. So we went through the next phase you know, on cloud transformation because everything was moving to the cloud. We partnered with um, Amazon AWS. Uh, we're a very, very large partner for AWS. We have thousands and thousands of customers running our products in, on AWS. And that phase was about R&D, innovation, and all that. Uh, so now uh, there's a new CEO who used to be the CFO. So he and I were peers. So he's Kevin Samuelson. He's, so we're in the next phase where we need to operationalize, get more customers into the cloud. Not that innovation stops, but along with it, we need to get the rest of the organization to, to ride along with it and get customers to get the benefit. So, so you can look at it as three different phases of the company that uh, I've been with. So I met the CEO to your earlier question on day one when uh, when this thing started. So it's a it's a pretty remarkable journey. I, I was lucky to be part of that. And and like, why do you stay? Like, twenty five years is a long time. I'm just curious, like, what what goes on inside of your mind? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So sometimes what happens is um, you're looking for opportunities and you keep moving to different companies to 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 seek those opportunities. In my case. I stayed put and the company started expanding. We were in food and beverage. Then we were in, uh, you know, discrete manufacturing like, uh, you know, uh, aerospace and defense and uh, high tech and so on. Then we went to healthcare. Uh, then we went to hospitality. You know, many of the hotels like Kimpton Hotels runs our software. So as more and more opportunities came along, my role expanded. I was, like I said, I was fortunate to be part of that journey, but it kept me you know, really uh, interest, uh, interested in to learn more about these industries and innovate uh, in a way that I can actually bring these innovations to multiple industries in a unique way. So that that kind of kept me interested. So I stayed on. So, so there's like, you know, new problems, complexity, things that, you know, you seem like a pretty curious person, right? And so having to learn these new skills and navigate the different maturity levels of the business has just held your attention. It's Exactly. Kept you interested. Exactly. I'm curious. So you got to you know, spend time all over the globe and for like long periods of time, like more than just visiting for a couple of weeks, like India, Germany, Australia. I think you also said like UK. But I'm always curious because I'm I'm newer in life and just started traveling in the past like two years. And so I haven't experienced a whole lot yet. But I do notice that there are some differences and and different cultures and work ethics and just how they different mindsets. I was curious, like, have you noticed any different patterns throughout the cultures that you've gotten to experience? Yeah, very much so, actually. You know, different cultures. I mean, I you know, today I have even without travel uh, as part of my life, um, I have uh, about roughly 9,000 people in my team. Uh, they are spread all over the world. And um you know, when you're working with people in, you know, different parts of the world, the way they communicate, uh, the way they think, um, their, their desire to, uh, to please somebody, there, there's so much difference culturally, right? So I, I would say, like, for example, um, we have a big office in uh, Netherlands. As people say, if somebody's Dutch, they're very direct, right? If you ask them, hey, can you do this, right? So no, I, I, I can't do it. Sorry, this cannot be done. Right? Versus you go to a place like India, no is generally not part of the culture. You ask something, say, yeah, sure, right? Doesn't mean that they'll actually get it done, but it just means that they have a desire to get it done. 
Um, so you just have to understand the the cultural differences and what to interpret when when you hear that, uh, so that you set your calibrate yourself in terms of what what you're um, you know going to get and and um, and guide up you know accordingly. And that's true for many many cultures. We have offices in Philippines. You know, some in some places people uh, work you know really late hours. Some some places they don't. It's a it's a it's pretty pretty unique. Uh, Middle East is also very very unique, the way they they operate and how they conduct business. So yeah, I mean cultural understanding of how these different parts of the world talk, communicate, do their work, and do business. Um, you got to know that uh, to be successful. Yeah, and it seems like from a human standpoint, if you're just like a good person, if you're a high quality person and you have the basic principles of you know understanding to listen and and read people and things of that nature, then you could navigate through these cultures you know without a whole lot of issues. You just kind of have to get to know the group of people, understand them, and then be cognizant or be aware of that when you're communicating with them. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not rocket science. It's just, you know, you can just, you know, you can naturally pick that up. But people feel like it is before they have the experience. So I get like people that reach out all the time asking different questions and stuff or commenting on the podcast. And it's, it's funny. One of the things I've picked up is that with the things we don't know, there's typically like large amounts of fear associated with them. It's like, oh, I have awareness that I don't know this. Now I need to learn it. What's the skill or, or what can I do? And people say, you know, how do I, you know, understand multiple cultures and go through them? And I was, my first question was like, do you really need that right now? <laughs> like, is that a skill that you must have right now? And the second thing is probably just be a really great human and listen. And that will, that will get you, get you to where you want to go. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I agree. So I'm curious about strategy, right? So in in your profile, I had mentioned that you're like one of the heads of strategy, defining the strategy or finding it for Infor. And um, I was just curious. So I, I started reading about strategy. And I'm, this is not like a quiz or anything. This is just me. <laughs> like we can cut anything we don't like out of the podcast. So it's cool. But I was, so I was reading about the difference between strategy and tactics because that just came up as a question. It's like, okay, you have strategy that seems to be like a plan, but then you have tactics and when do you use strategy? And it seems like the origin of all of this stuff came from war, right? From, from my research. But I want to know from you, like, how do you see strategy? How do you think about strategy? Yeah. Um, you know, um, strategy by definition, um, you're thinking long-term, right? Tactics is much more about what am I what am I going to do today, tomorrow, this week. Um, so both are kind of important, but strategy is very important to to define you what your long term vision is and and align on that, right? So, for example, um, the company Infor, right? So we're about industry, right? So which means that we're not going to to follow the philosophy that I write one piece of code. And that I'm going to sell to you know um, seven billion people like an Apple iPhone, right? So it's very different. Here we write something that is specific for certain industry, right? So that is our strategy. Um, so we're not going to deviate from that. We also decided that every uh, uh, you know we we're going to double down and do everything in the cloud, and that is a strategy, right? So if you're going to be on premise, you want a CD that I want to ship, I need to ship to you. 
I can, but it's going to be suboptimal, right? I'm going to optimize for cloud. So that's sort of how I would define strategy is. And once you decide that, okay, you're going to be in cloud, right? Do you want to build the cloud infrastructure or do you 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 partner with somebody? We partnered with AWS, right? Our core competence is on, in the applications, not in the infrastructure, right? So why not partner with them? Those are examples of what I would say, you know, how you, um, you know, define your strategy and, and, and that you will not revisit that and change dramatically within the course of few months or even even a few years you you would revisit strategy on a yearly basis and update as you need to but that's sort of how i look at strategy tactics is much more about you know this is here's a customer who's in this particular industry they have this particular problem how can i solve that problem right uh, and get this customer to be successful that to me is tactical right so so that's but both are important you have the strategy first it's sort of like um, you've heard the story that if I have a bunch of rocks and a, and a um, you know uh, a bag of sand and a jar, which do, which one do you put in the jar first, right? So you put the rocks in first and then put the put the sand, right? So to 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 cut to the chase. To me, the rocks are the strategy, right? Everything else will fill in in the remaining space, but you got to put the rocks in first. I like that. That's a good visualization. So, all right, I want to know like what the next 10 years are going to look like. Are there going to be huge sweeping changes inside the ERP world in the next 10 years? Or will things be like about the same with some advancements and like machine learning or some other different technologies? What do you think the next 10 years will look like? I think um, 10 years uh, in, the, in the, um, the technology world is, is you know, a lifetime. It's a, it's a long time. And I think that there's going to be some pretty uh, uh, major changes that will happen. For example, you take um, healthcare. With the current pandemic, telemedicine is accelerating, right? People are not going to go to doctor's offices. You'll have probably a little kit that you have. You can scan yourself and do things to yourself. And, and the doctor can look at you through Zoom and they can dispense medicine. Most of the time, you don't have to go to a facility unless you need to have a procedure, right? Same thing with uh, similar thing with manufacturing. Manufacturing went outside the U.S. to, to, uh, to China and other places where it's um, labor is cheaper, right? But if I have a lot of automation and robots operating a, a plant, a factory, why couldn't I have the factory here at home? Right. So if I do that, I need a lot more automation, a lot more robotics, a lot more APIs to connect these things together. Uh, and those things are available. It's, it's uh, because of the cloud and all of the, the technology innovation that happened. I think that's that those kind of things are going to become more um, more common. So every industry, these are just two examples, every industry that that uh, that's um, transforming itself is going to transform using technology as a means to to get that and get there. Yeah, I was talking a little bit about like transformation and the future with uh, Steve from Siena. They make these underground cables that are like the backbone of the internet. And we were talking about like R&D teams and building the future. And I was just curious, like, do you have teams that are like specifically dedicated to, to R&D or seeing out into the future? Yeah, we do. So the te- you know, just the example I just used, there is a common term people use called industry 4.0, right? 
industry 4.0 is what I just described, automation, and you have robotics and things like that, right? That's, a, that's an example of that. In order to do that, you need to actually experiment with customers to, to work with them and see how these, you know, the applications we have, what used to be ERP, ERP was monolithic back in the day. It's no longer, right? These are set of services I offer, and these services can be put together to solve a particular problem for these for a particular customer. So this is very use case driven. And then if you want to do use cases, you got to really experiment with, with teams that go work with customers to prove it. And, and you know, so that's that's what we do, right? So the one customer, as an example, uh, uh, you know, we've closely worked with this company called Flex, Flextronics. So if you bought uh, a Microsoft Xbox or a, a HP printer or a Amazon Fire Stick, the, the, the company that actually made that most of the time is this company, right? Very, very large company. Oh, cool. So, so they, they are bringing some of the manufacturing back to the U.S., like uh, I was describing before, and, and we're working closely with them to prove out that, yeah, this is industry 4.0 uh, is, is, can actually be implemented and you can actually deliver the outcomes that you decide to deliver. And that company is called Flex, Flexonics? Or? No, Flex. Flex as in flexible. Flex, F-L-E-X, yeah. Nice. I'm going to look them up. They, they sound like they make some really cool electronics. So they're, they're actually in the U.S. and they're manufacturing. It's so like Xboxes are manufactured in the U.S.? Not Xbox, but I don't know specifically oh, okay. which part, which ones that they manufacture here, but they have a large operation in China. And um, they've, they've started setting up plants in the U.S. where they can oh, be cool. closer to their customer like Cisco or Amazon and others who are their big customers, right? So... So getting manufacturing closer to the customer, having much more automation, so your quality is higher, your delivery uh, performance is higher, and and you don't have to worry about the labor arbitrage, right? Because you, it's automated. It's not like you need a thousand people to to run a factory. So so that's those are classic examples of how I think industry will transform. Yeah, I watched um, a YouTube video of a tour of Elon Musk Tesla factory. And there are just like rows and rows of robots. And like, you will rarely see like a technician walking by and then they'll be working on like, you know, a section of the robots. And, but I mean, it is a, I almost want to take a picture of that and put it next to a picture of like the Ford car operating line, like back in the day when there was just like hundreds of people on this, you know, conveyor belt. But yeah, you're exactly right. Once you get the, systems automated there really isn't a reason why they shouldn't be here you know it sounds sounds smarter uh just like logistically for humanity to have you know decentralized manufacturing because then you increase your odds of complete failure right like if a meteor (laughs) hit some part and like destroyed like half of a continent you would still have manufacturing capabilities on the other half right exactly yeah no, this is good. Do you like Musk? Do you like Elon Musk? Yeah, I mean he's an innovator, and and yeah, I like like you know innovation is my it's in my DNA. So yeah, absolutely. He's he's a little bit of a wild animal though with his Twitter yeah. and his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people, you know, people are quirky. Everyone has their quirks, um, but he definitely knows what he's doing um, with um, with, with uh, Tesla and his SpaceX, and so yeah, I like him. Have you followed the Neuralink updates? No, I have not. Oh, man. 
So they just re they release one every year and they use it for like recruiting so that he brings like all his top engineers from all the different sections of the business and they go on like a YouTube stream type deal and you get to ask in-depth questions. It's not like marketing hypey like type of presentation. It's just a, this is where we're at today. And they've implanted these neural links into these pigs and it's just absolutely fascinating about what they're going to be able to do in the future. I just see it as they're progressing uh, their ability to essentially turn the brain into like an API. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do you get geeky with that type of stuff? Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's what I live and breathe every day. That's what I'm talking about. So what are you into right now? Like what sort of uh, side articles have you been reading or technology you've been learning about that you think is pretty cool? I think, you know, I mean, AI, while it's been um, in the hype cycle for a while, but the, no one's really got embedded AI in a, in a good way, right? So in, in, a, in a useful way. AI has been more as a standalone science project, no pun intended, right? So, uh, so how do you get that embedded into everyday life? And that's something that's, uh, you know, that intrigues me. So since we are automating business processes in a company, for example, or in a, in a healthcare organization, can we embed AI? So the ideal scenario is AI is the UI, Right? There's no UI for somebody to go to, right? Short of that, you have the UI embedded with the AI that uh, people can make better decisions, right? So if you look at those two scenarios of uh, what I would call embedded AI, uh, there are just a lot of use cases that, that uh, we, can, um, we can dream up that can actually bring a lot of benefit to humanity, right? So, and that's, something that's you know interests me a lot you know i don't you know claim to know everything i need to know but uh, but that area definitely is very interesting and i think it's going to drive a lot more productivity and um, a lot less manual things that people have to do you you know mundane things that people have to do and i think that's that's um, that's exciting i mean that one topic to me is very exciting yeah it almost seems like it will be possible to have more of a utopian type society in the future. Like you'd think not. And then you just see how robots like in just such a short period of time. I mean, we had electricity like a hundred, 110 years ago, we got it and look where we're at today. You know, we're beaming light across the globe, talking to each other in real time. <laughs> That's pretty nerdy. Yeah. No, innovation always, I feel like it accelerates because these are things that they, uh, have dependency on each other that occurred before obviously without electricity none of this would happen and then you keep going progressing with uh, computing that allowed us to digitize things right so robotics allows us to to do tasks that human beings would do uh, that can be repeatably done in an accurate way and these and then then came along cell the internet so if you just add all those technologies, the acceleration starts to 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 like really take off, and that's why the time 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 gets compressed more and more as technologies kind of compound on each other. Yeah, and to even add a layer of complexity, as we age, we perceive time differently. So it's like you have all of this innovation on its time path, 
while the individuals that are perceiving this innovation time path are on their own version of compressing that time throughout life. It's, it's a really yeah. fascinating Very uh, true. thing. Yeah. I, I built this, uh, like way back in the day, I built this uh, per time perception calculator where you'd put in the age of two people and it would show you the difference in time perception between them. Cool. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I was actually asking for help online, <laughs> like on the formulas. And some people were yelling at me thinking that like I was a college kid and like trying to get a cheat answer on my test. And I'm like, no, I'm an engineer. Here's my GitHub. I'm just trying to build a fun project. <laughs> Oh man. Okay. So I'm, cu I'm curious about like, you have a, a large amount of leadership experience, right? And I get messages from people all the time. I even got a message like last weekend from this guy named Robin. And he said that uh, he had used some insight or advice that he had heard on the podcast in order to get a promotion and, and move up in his career. And I was curious uh, what, and he went from uh, engineer to manager. And so I was curious you know, what your thoughts are on that transition from engineer to manager and how that individual could have success? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question. So, you know, fundamentally, you're an engineer. If you're an engineer, you're an engineer from start to end, right? So I am uh, I'm an engineer. So the, the, when you go from an individual contributor where you're actually touching and you know, writing code, to a manager and then progress from there, right? So as you start to do that, the ability to articulate how you guide people to do things in a way that come together. And right? when you have multiple individual contributors work together towards a, towards a goal, to me, I'm biased, but uh, to me, design is something that you need to have clarity in your head as a manager. Um, if you manage managing in a in a technology world is not about just people that's obviously important but it's also about the the, the, the design that you're trying to achieve I mean Elon Musk is a, a classic example you know he's got this design in his head and he's going to drive like a maniac to try to get that thing done right so when you are trying to get a bunch of people to actually align on that design and work towards that design and get something delivered, so that 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 in my mind that that's what I believe I firmly believe that helped me in my career. I've been in this industry for thirty eight years, you know went from mainframe to to where we are today, right so in order to make that transition because you're not going to get the opportunity to write a lot of code as you progress in your career, but you need to have the the design perception and the ability to relate back to how you can achieve that design. Uh, using modern technologies. Um, anyway, so it's a long-winded answer, but that to me is no. uh, is an important aspect. No, it is. Yeah, we talk as much as you want, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's. I love that you said that with clarity because that's that's very true. And so it would be clarity of the objective or clarity of the outcome, the mission, the thing you're trying to achieve, and then focus on your path towards achieving that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, examples of like Steve Jobs when he, you know, designed something. People who have design skills are worth a thousand engineers. That is very true. I've, I remember this one guy who was a fantastic engineer, but he was equally good as a designer. And uh, he's been my best friend for like 12 years. But 
when I met him, I was just like, I need to be around this person, right? Because not only do they have like clean code and are very intelligent there, but they have great design. And uh, you're right, they could get so much more done because they could see it easier, uh, see the outcome easier, and then focus on it. Isn't it weird how like in life, it seems the most difficult thing is persistence. It's like, to continue to focus and to achieve they're they're so basic and we hear them all the time but they really are like the most difficult things you could possibly do like the easiest thing to do is like change or give up like the hardest thing to do is to stick through it and and push yourself when it's when it's hard or when it's unclear to make it clear right isn't that weird yeah yeah that's i think human beings in general are looking for instant gratification and um, so that kind of is counter to to what we just said, right? Like you, you got to you got to look not look for instant gratification, but rather look for milestones, but that have clarity of thought in terms of where you want to go, right? So that's easier said than done. Most people don't have that level of uh, perseverance. Well, like for me, I started out as a very impatient person. I mean, I'm still impatient, but. What I found out is that when you're impatient, you want quick results and good things don't come quick. And so basically, you know, my 20s was me running against a wall, like just making the same mistakes over and over and over. And then what happened was you get to this point where you're just, you want it so bad and you've failed so much that you just do it right. You just say, there's nothing that's going to keep, I'm going to find principles. I'm going to understand how successful people think. And then I'm, I'm going to die executing on those types of advice. And then, and then if I don't make it uh, by the end of my life, I will feel okay with myself because I pushed through, I overcame, I found the most successful people I could find. I learned how they think. I implemented it in my own life. I put in the work. And that's like the most comfortable way I could, or, or like, you know, fail. I could be okay with myself at the end of my life. And it turns out that, oh my goodness, it happens way faster than you would think. Like if you start executing and adjust your 24 hours and just absolutely crush it and really care and try, then you can get incredibly far in, you know, three, five, 10 years. You can go really far. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I just don't know how to tell that to my past self. Like, I don't know if like, if I go back in a time machine 10 years, like how would I tell that version of me? And I guess, I guess it's just the way life works. You just kind of mature and you get frustrated and there's people. And then some people, you know, you shake out a certain percentage of the people figure it out. And then those are the ones that, I mean, there's the reason why like the successful people make up like one to 2% of the population, right? Like it's not for everybody. It's hard. Yes, absolutely. Do you think about this stuff? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, like I, I, like I said already, like I've been doing this for 38 years. 38 years is a long, long time, right? So having that um, sort of building on your learnings, to your point, you never go back and revisit and try to relive the, the last 10 years, but rather you want to use that experience, good, bad, and the ugly, to, to then shape what the next 10 years is going to look like, right? So you'll always learn something new that you didn't think about, but um, it's that continuity, the, the, the thought process that, that provides that continuity and building on what you've learned to get better and better at what you do is, um, 
is something that's simple, but not many people do that. Yeah, it's also like perspective matters, like the story you tell yourself. And I found that setting five-year goals and letting time do its work, it's like, okay, here's where I want to be in five years. Here's my current habits and how I spend my day. And I'm going to set up my habits and actions throughout the day to give me the greatest possibility of hitting this in five years. And if I don't, I know I'll at least be closer than if I did nothing. <laughs> right? Correct. And so I'm on my second five-year plan in life because the first one worked like really well. But just that mindset of like putting the routine together and then letting time compound, like letting time do its thing. That's a hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah it is. Because you know you don't you may not necessarily see results on a daily weekly basis, but um, it's sort of invisible. But you have to be able to see it, the progress you've made. And I don't know, and I'm curious what you think. So part of me is thinking that like it's always been difficult to rise to the top, right? It's always been difficult to be like in the top one or two percent. And part of me feels like society is getting more instant gratification ish and and wanting wanting it quicker faster but i'm not i'm not really sure I'm not really even sure what the question is <laughs> but I, I i do you feel like that or how, how do you do you feel society is heading in like a good direction or it's about the same or no like i said the pace of innovation the pace of uh, how we consume things everything is getting you know uh, more accelerated so the timelines for what used to take 10 years for a transformation is now taking one year. I think that the you know, Microsoft CEO uh, said in his earnings call, they are seeing four years of transformation in four weeks or four months with the pandemic, right? So as things become more and more compressed, people then tend to, to be impatient and they want to you know, see more and more um, uh, success or, or deliverables in short periods of time. However, as a human being, and if you are focused on, in, in our case, it's technology, right? If you're a CTO and you want to, to, to really be a, a conduit to achieving these things, then you have to string them together, right? So you have to string them together over a long period of time. 30 years ago, how computing uh, was and, and now is, is night and day. But you need to be able to choreograph yourself through that three decades of innovation and getting your pace to be faster and faster as the past pace of innovation is happening and transform yourself so that you have that continuity, right? And that is what most people miss. People, you know, kind of focus on one thing and they don't, they don't have the abstract thinking in their mind. This can transform that particular thing that I'm working on to something different over the next two years and something different yet again, the following two years is a, is a hard thing to do because you know, you're, you're learning all the time. You stop learning, you're done. A hundred percent. So I want to learn a little bit from you. What's, what's the hardest leadership lesson that you've learned or one that just repeats itself over and over? One thing that um, I would say that I've learned is that as a as a hands-on uh, technologist, right? Most of us are, right? So as a hands-on technologist, the temptation is to think that if you can do it, it'll be much faster to do it. 
than explaining to someone else. Uh, but if you want to scale, you need to be able to actually let other people do things that you would have perhaps done sooner. But then if you have hundreds of people or thousands of people who do things the way you want it done, you achieve scale. And that is a hard thing to do uh, for a technologist because you want to be hands-on. The second thing, which is an extension of that, is that you need to allow people to make their own mistakes. Right? That's just the way life is. Um, so if people don't make mistakes, then they won't learn. Sometimes they will come up with design ideas that um, that you, you may know intuitively that's not the right thing to do, but sometimes you may have to just let go, just let them experiment and fail. Um, or maybe you're wrong, right? So so it's it's those two qualities I feel help me a lot that um, you don't have to be the master at everything, right? You, you let people do their thing with your guidance. Um, and that is what I would say that... Um, is is a leadership style that can that that can go over a long period of time. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that the, the plus side too is if you, you know, mildly disagree or you just make a suggestion like I don't know if that's the best route or you may want to think about these two things and then they say no and they're going to go on, you know, you encourage them, okay, do it because when you fail <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna you know understand that there's like you know other perspectives to consider they'll listen to you the next time i've always played with like how hard i push like there's some things where i'm like not certain i just have some brief knowledge on and there's some things i have like mild deep knowledge on and i absolutely know that won't work uh but it's it's always fun to like it's hard to articulate there's no like book or there's no interview I'm going to do that one person's going to give like the magic answer. It really just seems to be about gaining experience and trying new things. But the difference in, in leaders that I see is some leaders try new things more often and experiment and they have more iterations and cycles and then they have just more experience. But experience is not like exclusively tied to age. It's, it's how you spent that time as well, right? Correct. So how do you how do you mentor and uh, grow your direct reports? Um, you know, this is um, I, I I'm a, I'm a designer at heart, so so that's how I connect with my my direct reports because they're all owning certain parts of our uh, our you know um, technology teams and um, one I have one on one conversations, design ideas, I brainstorm with them and give them certain ideas um, that they may they may either gravitate towards or not and then i see what what might stick and and then we build on that like whiteboard sessions you know virtually these days but but do that and then i have collectively bring my direct reports together on like strategy uh, you know themes that we want to execute on and then try brainstorm on those so the one on one and then the team uh, collaboration tends to work really well because uh, individuals uh, innovate and go at their own pace and then that those things in technology has a lot of interdependency and bringing those individual teams innovations to be adopted by the rest of the the, the, the teams is uh, equally important because lack of that is actually going to be a waste of time 
the greatest technology, but it's not adopted, then what uses it? So that's sort of how uh, I work with my teams. I wouldn't say mentor, but I, I learn as much as they learn. Uh, we work together uh, in that fashion. And what what's like the one or two qualities that you really look for that people that have potential, maybe that are like skip level that could become your direct reports. What are you looking for in those people? Well, you know, I always use these three principles. Um, you know, one, you got to be a good human being. Two, you got to be hardworking. Three, if you're smart, that's fantastic, right? So in that order. And in, in, in people who, who are good, good people, they don't try to, to pull people down to gain attention or whatever, right? So if there are people who are humble and they are very innovative, they, you know, there are, I myself uh, grew up like that, right? So I was an engineer, right? To, to get to, to this role uh, with thousands of people in my team, it just didn't happen overnight. And, and you gotta be patient, you work and make yourself visible in the right way and, um, and, and um, be very collaborative, be innovative and hardworking. And so you will get the visibility, you, you, you know, most of the time. Sometimes you can be unlucky, but most of the time you'll get what you need. Yeah, that's why like systems for exact results, I like less than principles. The, for some reason, I read that Ray Dalio book, Principles, and ever since then, you know, not necessarily just copying over everything he had learned, but just this concept of tracking, because I'm always looking for, like, what's the least amount of things I can focus on to get me the best result, right? Because you don't want to focus on too many things, otherwise you're diluted. And so it seems like principles is is the most important. It, it's interesting, like how companies, they'll have the culture items. And for a while, like I, they felt kind of cliche, but then I realized that different companies have different personalities, right? And some of these companies that have really figured out how to make these principles, like the core part of their organization tend to have a lot of success. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So human beings, I think, can probably grasp three things at the most. Um, if you throw 10 things, some things are going to drop off. So focus and, and having, you know, the three, two or three things that you want to really achieve really well, then just go after that and relentlessly go after that. What what tool do you use to do the whiteboarding remotely? Well, we can we can use uh, Microsoft tools, right? So even in Teams, you can you can uh, uh, whiteboard and and draw things. And so uh, yeah, we we use that. So, you know, Surface allows you to do that. And nothing fancy. We we uh, that's that's what we use to to kind of draw and and collaborate. Did you ever take any like fun like one day courses or anything like that in drawing to get better whiteboard skills? Maybe I should. I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't either. But I was trying to find an app the other day to like improve my whiteboard skills, and they had all different types of of apps, but I couldn't find one that was that would be a good use of that, right? But whiteboarding, I, I'm going to search after this to see if there's like a course on like better technical whiteboarding drawing skills, because I think that, uh, that that would be, it's like, it's something I can do. Like I can doodle relatively okay, but it's something that I've never like really put any time into trying to improve. Yeah. Yeah. No, I will do the same actually. Yeah. I'll let you know if I find anything too. Sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
Now, was there anything we're coming up on, on the, on the two o'clock hard stop? So I want to make sure, like, is there anything that I didn't ask or topics that you want to cover that weren't covered? No, I think we touched on, uh, you know, several topics, you know, I would, I would say that, um, the world is more and more connected. Technology is what's making it possible. So to me, every employee, whether you're actually a technologist or not, you need to have technology in your skill set, whether that's you're the head of HR or, uh, you know, supply chain or whatever the case may be, technology is really, really important. I'll just say that my dad was a surgeon, right? So um, back in the day, you cut open the patient and, and do your surgery. Then laparoscopy came along, right? That's technology. So you got to be able to, you know, learn that and do surgery without major scars. But that that's, you know, people don't want a, a huge cut, right? So it's that kind of thing, understanding, um, you know, where technology can influence your role uh, is very important to not become redundant. Um, so to me, there is a CTO in every every human being. <laughs> I love that. That's good. I think that I think that wraps it up. Um, I guess I, I have one more though. Like, who's the most influential person in your life? Um, in my life, I would say that um, you know I've been married for thirty three years. In the in the last thirty three years, my wife has encouraged me to do whatever I'm doing. Um, uh, you know, without without that support, and and she's a technologist as well. Um, so you know that that helped me a lot to stay focused and do what I do. The early days, uh, my mom was uh, really, really relentless in pushing technology in, in the, you know, technology as it, as it was at the, in those times, right? So let me be uh, what I am. Even though my dad was a surgeon, I became a technologist, uh, didn't go into me- medical profession. So I would say, you know, the, the two women really had a lot of influence. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm sure your dad had like a an interest in like mastery or you know detail of the craft because I noticed that those things can often translate even when the exact topic doesn't translate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. He was passionate. He was a teacher as well in the medical school. So I probably picked that up because I love to to mentor and work with people, uh, hire people out of schools and become the, the, the future CTOs. Um, that, that's that's uh, interesting to me. So yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing like your insight and advice. And I'd love to have you back on again uh, next year. And it's been, been an absolute pleasure, Soma. Yep. Same here. Yeah. Loved uh, talking to you and uh, getting a you know, different perspective, right? From your questions and all that. There's always something to learn. So certainly I learned something too. So thank you so much, Soma. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.